read together in uh, Revelation and chapter 1. We will read the first chapter together. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants even the things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear witness of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, even of all things that he saw. <coughs> Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of the prophecy, and keep the things that are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits that are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loveth us, and loosed us from our sins by his blood, and he made us to be a kingdom, to be priests unto his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they that pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn over him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, saith the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partaker with you in the tribulation and kingdom and patience which are in Jesus, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, What thou seest, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamum, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like unto a son of man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about at the breasts with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto burnished brass. 
as if it had been refined in a furnace, and his voice as the voice of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth proceeded a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as one dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades or hell. Write therefore the things which thou sawest and the things which are, and the things which shall come to pass hereafter. And the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are seven churches. Now this evening, could we just bow our heads together in just one word further of prayer. Now, Lord, as we just turn to thy word, we pray that thou wilt make it live to us. Thou hast said that the spirit of truth himself shall lead you into truth. And we want to tell thee, Lord, that we all rely and depend upon the illuminating ministry of thy Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, we pray, and may this evening be effectual and influential in a permanent way in every one of our lives. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, now, this evening, um, I said that I would seek to give a kind of bird's-eye view of... uh, the revelation. Um, Really, I suppose, to be absolutely fair, we ought to entitle this evening Thoughts on the Book of Revelation, perhaps, or Guidelines to the Book of Revelation, for really it hardly does justice to so tremendous um, a subject um, to give justice one evening uh, to it. I think you all know that the book of Revelation is probably one of the most complex books in the Bible. It is filled with imagery, symbolism, uh, numerical uh, symbolism, and uh, much else. I did say the other day when I mentioned it that I suppose there are almost as many theories on the book of uh, of Revelation as there are books. And that really is true. However, there are some things that I believe would be of tremendous help to us in the light of the Lord's coming and of what he wants to do amongst us as his people if we were just to, as it were, look over this book and see for ourselves if we cannot find one or two of the keys to it. 
Now, just two things before we actually uh, look at such clues. First, this book tells us that there is a blessing in the reading of it. And it is also, we are told, a very dangerous book. So we have both a blessing and a warning. Now, let's look just at those scriptures. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of the prophecy, and keep the things that are written therein. That's where the blessing is. Not only in hearing, reading and hearing, but keeping the things that are written therein. therein. For the time is at hand. Then again, if you turn over to the last chapter, chapter 22, verse 7, And behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed is he that keepeth the words of the prophecy of this book. So we are told at least twice that there is a very real blessing in keeping the things that are within this book. All the more reason why you and I ought to understand something of the message of Revelation. God's blessings are always blessings. There's no sorrow attached to them. Then there is the warning. Revelation 22, verse 18 and 19. Now the person speaking is the Lord Jesus. I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto them, God shall add unto him the plagues which are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and out of the holy city which are written in this book. Well, now, I would have thought that was sufficient warning to be very careful um, in our handling of this book, our interpretation of it. Um, the Lord is extremely gracious. He must be when you read some of the books that have been written on this, for I can't help feeling that certain things have been added in the interpretation. And in other cases, some things have been taken away. However, the Lord is very, very gracious. Nevertheless, the warning is still there. And it means that we must handle this book very, very reverently and um, humbly. Um, I am always surprised at these dogmatic people who tell us that without any shadow of a doubt, they've got the whole key to the book, the outline and everything else, and everyone else is wrong. I think we must handle the book very, very humbly indeed in the fear of the Lord. And if we come with that spirit to this book, I am quite sure the Holy Spirit who warms immediately to true humility and meekness and dependence upon himself, um, the Holy Spirit will give us 
the key. Now, the second thing I would like just to say about this book is that it spans the age. Now, we're not going to speak this evening about the different views of the, of the, uh, of the book of Revelation, whether it's all in the future, at the, in the very last days, or whether it's all in the past, in John's day. Or but one thing is, it seems quite clear, and that is it spans the age. For instance, let's look at a few scriptures. First of all, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Just these uh, phrases. The things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Verse 2. Who bear witness of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, even of all things that he saw. Things which must shortly come to pass of the things, or even of all things, that he saw. Verse 11 of the same uh, chapter. What thou seest, write in a book. Verse 19. I know thy works and thy love and faith and ministry and patience, and that thy love... Just wait, I'm sorry, that's wrong. I'm so sorry, chapter 1, I've got chapter 2. Verse 19, write therefore the things which thou sawest, and the things which are, and the things which shall come to pass hereafter. The things which thou sawest, that may be they contain principle, they may be to do with the past, present or future, but they contain lessons. Things which are, conditions that exist, and things which are going to come hereafter. Now, again, a Revelation 22 and verse 6. He said unto me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. All right? And then verse 10, And he said unto me, Seal not up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Now, go back again. And another way of looking at this whole matter. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6 and 7 and 8. He made us to be a kingdom, to be priests unto his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now that's now, isn't it? He's made us. That was the beginning of this age, and right through it, he has made us a kingdom and priests unto his God and Father. Amen. Now future. Behold, he cometh with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they that pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn over him. Even so, amen. So that's the future. So we have the course, as it were, what the Lord is doing in, this, in, in our age, and the end of our age, the coming of the Lord. Now verse 8 sums it up. I am the Alpha and the Omega... Uh, saith the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, I think you all know that Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, 
and omega is the last. This is a Greek way of putting a Jewish saying, which was from Aleph to Tau, that is the first and the last Hebrew letters. It just meant everything, that's all. We would say in English from A to Z. A to Z. I am the A and the Z. <laughs> I'm everything. I'm the whole lot. I'm not only the beginning and the end, but all that goes between. The Lord didn't say, I am only Alpha and uh, Omega. He really meant, I am A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z. I'm the lot. But the easiest way to say it is, I am A and Z, or A to Z, if you like, um, if you find that easier. Now, that's very wonderful, because it means that at the beginning of this revelation, we are told that God is the beginning and the end in Christ. He is the first and the last and all that goes between. He is, as it were, um, the beginning and the ending and the power of progress from beginning to end. Or put it another way, he is the foundation, we know that, there is no other foundation than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, and he's the top stone. Top stone isn't the last person who's going to be saved. The top stone is the Lord Jesus Christ, who when the building is all absolutely completed, the last part is left perfectly for the top stone. And the top stone will come forth and will be fitted in with shouts of grace, grace unto it. Now in the old building there was no mortar, no uh, cement. The building was perfectly shaped and everything, the whole reputation of the architect, the builder depended on being able to get to the top stone without any fiddling. So that when that top stone went in, it was like we nowadays, of course, have a sort of stone laying ceremony at the foundation. But in those days, they used to have the top stone uh, put in as the final do, the kind of uh, opening of the place or the sort of dedication of the place. And of course, everyone could see instantly whether the architect was a good one whether the builder was a good one, because the stone should slide into place, absolutely slide in. Yeah. And that's the picture we have in Zechariah, uh, chapter 4, when we're told that the building, Zerubbabel laid the foundation, his hands shall complete it, and the top stone shall be brought forth with shouts of grace, grace unto it. Now, the, it's all symbolism, but the foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ, and the top stone is the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he is the first, and he is the substance out of which every living stone is quarried. Thou art Peter, on this rock will I build my church. Coming unto him as a living stone, ye also as living stones are built together. We're all quarried out of the same rock. He is the foundation. We're quarried out of it. And he is the top stone that's finally going to come forth out of heaven and fit perfectly into position at the, the last final um, stage of our dispensation. Well, now, that's um, Alpha and Omega. Now look at a few other scriptures in connection with this. Revelation 21 and verse 6. And he said unto me, They are come to pass, 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Then again look over to Revelation 22. And um, Revelation 22 verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's rather wonderful, at least as I see it. Now will you take another look at this whole matter of uh, this spanning the whole of this age, this book. The Lord Jesus says, almost as it were at the beginning and the end of this book, I am Alpha, I am Omega. This book is all to do with the A and the Z. And it's to do with all the other letters. From B to what is the one before Z? I just can't remember. U, B, W, X, Y. You see? Now, if you look in verse 16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright, the morning star. Now, the trouble with most of us the more familiar we are with the Word of God, the more we just allow these words to flow over us. What on earth does it mean? Why should he say to the churches, very largely composed of Gentile believers, I am the root and offspring of David? How can he be the root and the offspring of David? What he is saying is, I am the whole Old Testament. I am the root out of which David came. And I am the offspring of David. Well, that explains the whole Old Testament. From Genesis 3, the seed of the woman, right the way through to Mary, Joseph and Mary, who were both of the seed of David. One through Nathan, the other through Solomon. Uh, one through uh, Solomon, yes, and the other one through uh, Nathan. That's right. So... In many ways, you've got a whole Old Testament. Now, listen, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. The morning star is the herald of a new day. And that's the explanation of the New Testament. You see, the day, in one sense, we are children of the day. We're sons of, the, of light. But we've only got the morning star. The, the new day is yet to come. This book is all about the new day, which is going to come. We, of course, read about it in chapter 21, New Heavens and New Earth. The day of God, the new day, of which the Lord Jesus is the herald. The Lord Jesus is the morning star. The morning star, by the way, rises in the darkest portion of the night. There's always a mock dawn in the east. And then after that, a period of very real darkness, and it's then that the morning star can be seen. Well, there we are. There's just uh, some... The book spans the age, um, really. And that's why the Lord Jesus says this at the beginning. I'm the explanation of, the, of all that's past, and I am the herald of the new day that's coming. This book is a book of fearful conflict, of savage martyrdom. And much else that the flesh would shrink from. But don't worry. I've got the whole thing in my hand. I am the root and the offspring of David. And I am the bright and morning star which is heralding 
the sure and certain coming of the day of God, of a new heaven and a new earth. Well, now then, having said that, um, can we take another look at this book? What really is it all about? Now, I have always believed that the opening chapters and the concluding chapters of any uh, book um, give some kind of clue to its theme and message. It is certainly true of this. And indeed, it is true of all John's, uh, his, his gospel. It, it is true of that too. So I just want you to look for a few moments at the first three chapters of Revelation and the last two chapters of Revelation. And let's see if in, within these chapters we can find something which might give us, uh, as it were, guidelines to our understanding of this very complex book. Turn to Revelation chapter 1. The book opens with a vision of a risen, triumphant, all-glorious Christ walking in the midst of seven very ordinary churches on earth. Now, there's no doubt about these churches being really, on the whole, very ordinary. When you strip them of all the sentiment that surrounds them, because they're in the scripture, because they're sort of holy writ, they are in fact very ordinary places indeed. Furthermore, they were seven actual historical companies of God's children. They were true flesh and blood, just like we are here in Richmond. So they were in Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamum or Thyatira or the other places. They met the same kind of problems. They had the same kind of difficulty. They met the same kind of enemy. They had the same Savior. They had the same Holy Spirit. Seven very ordinary churches. It is, of course, very interesting that the Holy Spirit, in his infinite wisdom, selected seven churches which were neighbors. If I had had anything to do with it, I think for trying to be logical, I would have said, well, now the church of, in Rome is in existence, the church in Jerusalem is in existence, so that should be two of them, because if this is going to be a message to the whole age and to everyone else, let's sort of sort out a few churches in a wide geographical distance. Uh, the church at Ephesus will take, the church at Antioch, the church at Jerusalem, the church at uh, um, Corinth, the church at Rome and so on. But no, these seven churches are all neighbor, neighbor churches. In other words, they were all within those days would be considered to be very near to each other. Of course, today, they are no more than a bus ride between each one uh, on the whole. Well, now then, here we have the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 13. And in the midst of the lamp stands one like unto a son of man, clothed with a garment down to the foot. Chapter 2, verse 1, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, he that walketh in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. 
So here the book opens with a vision of the risen, triumphant, all-glorious Christ walking in the midst of seven very ordinary churches on earth. In spite of the sin, in some cases, gross sin, what we would call iniquity. In spite of that, in spite of the failure, in spite of the breakdown upon which he puts his finger unfailingly in every place, in spite of the contradiction that is there to himself, what could be more different than this absolutely all-glorious Lord, this peerless Christ and the condition of most of these churches. What a contradiction they are in some ways to his salvation, to his finished work, to the powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit. What a contradiction. But in spite of all that, the Lord is seen walking in their midst, encouraging and comforting. Now, if you look through these letters, so-called letters to these seven churches, you will find the Lord seeks everything he can encourage. He's he says, strengthen the things which remain before they die. He, he is all the time seeking to encourage. He commends everything that's commendable. He encourages everything which is of himself in those companies. He seeks to comfort those that are facing tribulation or suffering or misrepresentation, or misunderstanding, or persecution and so on. The Lord is in the midst not just as a judge, but as an advocate. And we must never forget that. So often we think of the Lord just simply moving around, judging, 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 judging. And this idea of some harsh Victorian schoolmaster who is going around whacking everyone, whacking the churches, exposing all the time. No, the picture we get here is of one who is absolutely peerless, absolutely without sin, absolutely holy, absolutely true, and yet full of love. Why, his great complaint against the first church is, you've left your first love. No one who doesn't love is bothered about that. He couldn't care less. First love, first love, sometimes we would call it almost calf love, you know the kind of first love, the first great flush of love that simply it captures a person, that simply overwhelms them, that makes them do all kinds of silly things, that makes them walk on the air, that kind of love. Well, no one's bothered about that, who's not very much in love. I'm glad she's got over that stage, someone would say. You know, a sort of uh, bit more balanced now, doubt her feet on the earth, but not the person who's in love. The person who's in love wants someone to stay like that all the time. That's exactly what the Lord says here. You've left your first love. You're not walking on air anymore. You're not just absolutely in love with me like you used to be. You see, here is the complaint of a, of a triumphant, holy, risen Christ who is all out for that which is of himself. He's encouraging it. He's Seeking to keep that spirit and quality in them all. He's encouraging and comforting. So through all these churches, he is so unlike us. 
He's moving through, seeking to strengthen everything which is of himself. Seeking to bring them to overcoming. Why the message all comes? He that overcomes, why the Lord's not standing there in a harsh way. But he's saying, look here, just you let me do something in you and you'll overcome. He that overcomes, you'll have this and you'll have that and you'll have the other. He's encouraging. And don't give up. Don't give up. Even if the condition in your company is absolutely hopeless and as black as can be, don't give up. Overcome. Overcome. And if you overcome, why, you'll come into so much, you'll never regret it. And on the other side, of course, we have to say that he is moving round, warning and judging. There is nothing escapes the eye of the Lord. He sees everything. No one and nothing escapes him. There are some people who seem to be afraid of this giving account to the Lord or of the elders giving account to the Lord. Well might they be afraid if they've got something to hide. But the Lord who has eyes as a flame of fire, no one deceives him, no one deludes him. There's no facade he can't see through, no veneer that he doesn't know what old wood is underneath it. He knows everything. So all that artificiality and superficiality doesn't mean a thing to, the, to, to this risen Christ with the eyes as a flame of fire. He sees through it all. And the wonderful thing is in seeing through it all, he's still that one of love. Now when he warns, he warns in love. He says in one of the messages, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. I reprove and chasten. So that we can be sure that the reproving of the Lord is always a, a, a mark of his love for us. Whereas if we're getting away, it's because, frankly, there's something that's put us somehow away from him altogether. The Lord has a purpose for you. He won't let you get away with anything. It's a sure sign of his very real love. Well, here he is, warning. He is warning, not because he delights to explode, expose, and because he delights to destroy. He's warning because he wants to save us from a certain course of action, from compromise, from facade, from veneer, from artificiality. And the Lord is judging here. He's not just warning, not sort of warning and warning, saying I won't do it. He says, I've given that woman, Jezebel, time to repent, and she has not. I will throw her into her bed with those that have committed fornication with her and all her children shall die. In other words, when the time comes, the Lord's going to do it. Now the Lord's quite inescapable when he gets like that. When he says, time's come, he'll do it. You can't play about with the Lord. Well, now, there is the vision we have. The most extraordinary thing is that most of us would long ago have flung up these companies. They are, after all, quite honestly, far too of them, quite rotten. I suppose we could put Ephesus in with them as not being too bad, really. But when you read of some of the things that go on in the others in the name of Christ, it is appalling. Well, now... <clears throat> We must note that the whole book, this whole book of Revelation, in the first instance, is directed toward these seven churches. Now, this may be a shock to some, 
But the whole book, not just the first three chapters, some people seem to go in for a kind of dichotomy in this book. They sort of separate the first three chapters, and we even get commentaries written on the seven letters to the churches, as if it bears no, no message at all for the rest of the book. It has nothing to do with the rest of the book. This is quite untrue. The whole of this book, with all its visions, was in the first instance written for these seven churches, these seven companies of believers, with all this very poor state of affairs existing amongst them. Now, you can't get away from that. You find it in chapter 1, verse 11. What thou seest, write in a book. Not write in a letter. Write in a book and send it to the seven churches. Unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamum, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. So this whole book with all these tremendous visions and the final absolute triumph of the Lord and his Christ were written to these seven local churches. And it was for them that it was written. So therefore, all that we have in the succeeding chapters has an awful lot of bearing upon church life. Strangely enough. A tremendous amount of bearing upon the conduct, the constitution and the behaviour of the churches. Must do. Now this is affirmed in Revelation chapter 22. Quite dogmatically. Revelation 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things for the churches. Now, some of you in your modern versions will have to the churches. In the revised version, the standard version, it is over the churches. That is in the margin, over the church, or concerning the churches. Well, however we like to look at it, it is affirmed. If it's to the churches, which I don't think is the best reading, but if it is to the churches, then it is reaffirmed that this whole book was written to these churches. But the emphasis is widened. So it's just not to the seven churches, but to the churches. What I like is this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto these things over the churches, or concerning the churches. That is, these things have a tremendous amount to say for the churches. They have a tremendous influence upon the churches. All this has so much. Well now, it's even more remarkable that between Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation 21, the word church or churches never occurs once. So that immediately we have had these messages to the seven churches, there is not another single instance of the word until Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16. That is surely quite remarkable and has probably led to some people to think that therefore those chapters have nothing to do uh, with them at all, whereas they have everything to do with them. The book, however, ends not with churches in view at all, but something utterly heavenly and eternal. The holy city, New Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Not a spot, not a wrinkle, not a blemish, not any such thing. Transparent, irradiating the glory of God. Now that's really where this book ends. It doesn't end with churches. We're only brought back to this matter because <clears throat> that great vision of the final coming of the Lord is, has a lot to do with the practical life um, of us as the people of God uh, on earth. But it actually ends with this glorious vision of this city which is like no other city. It has only one street, it is 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles broad, and 1,400 miles deep. <laughs> Think of that, you've never seen a skyscraper like that. And it is only one street, and yet it's got 12 gates. Work that one out. It is an extraordinary city. It has foundations of precious stones, it's made of pure gold. You've never seen gold that's transparent as glass. Yet this gold has been so refined that it is just like an electric light bulb. Light goes clean through it. I've often described it like a transparent electric light bulb. When you turn the light out, you can see the shape. But when you've got the light on, you cannot see the sh shape in a blaze of light. And that's exactly true of this city. When the glory of God is there, you can't see the city. It's just a blaze of light like the sun. Glorious. Absolutely glorious. Now, all the enemy's vile and implacable hatred has been frustrated. His every device, somehow or other, to compromise that city to destroy that work of God, that building work of God, has been not only undone, but turned to glory. So that Satan becomes a servant of the Lord in producing the pearl, in producing the gold, in refining the gold so that it's like glass, in producing the precious stone. And this book is all about that. It shows you Satan given a tremendous amount of scope and rope. At times it seems he can do almost anything and everything. It's a book of suffering, it's a book of persecution. There are dark and terrible pictures conjured up before our eyes. Things that make some people quail at the thought. Should we go through it and give other people great comfort if they believe that we shall go before the tribulation? But there are those dark pictures. And yet, this book shows us that everything the devil does is finally turned round to producing the thing he tried to stop. So, the book ends with the heavenly bridegroom, the lamb, marrying the bride. That's how the book ends, and we read it in chapter 21, 
and verse 2, I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Well, of course, uh, as uh, in the old days, just like now, quite a bit of fuss goes into preparing the bride. Uh, her dress has got to be right, her, her gloves have got to be right, her veil's got to be right. Everything is right for that occasion. And here we see this city, a most extraordinary thing. One moment is the city, the next minute is like a bride with her veil in place. Everything perfect, ready for the wedding. Dawned for her husband. Now, if you turn again to Revelation 22, you read these words, verse 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come. The spirit and the bride say, come. Now, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you the unto you these things over the churches, concerning the churches. And the spirit and the bride say, come. There is somehow a link between the churches and what the Lord has testified concerning them. And the spirit and the bride say, come. It's a picture of an invitation to be in this. To be, this is the Lord's first thought. And then you go on and say, He that heareth, let him say, Come. That's John, of course. And he that is athirst, let him come. And he that willeth, let him take a water of life. <coughs> well, now, all that's very wonderful, but we, won't, we must not stop there. If you go back even further to verse 13, here we have it, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Well, now, that's all very, very wonderful. It is, therefore, an inescapable conclusion that the book is somehow linked with the churches. Cannot get away from that. And this is a thing that seems to be overlooked in so many of the outlines and uh, commentaries on this book. It is quite inescapable. The fact that there may not be the kind of churches that are here described does not warrant uh, us uh, uh, making another conclusion. It's quite inescapable. And I think it's very important that we should uh, get there. However tremendous, however dramatic, however overwhelming the visions that are contained within the chapters 4 to 20, we must not lose sight of this or we lose the essential message of this book. So surely it is all of grace that before John sees vision after vision, sometimes dark and terrifying, sometimes hideous, as he views the terrible conflict over the eternal purpose of God concerning his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus in the midst of the churches reaffirms his absolute sovereignty. 
before John ever sees one vision more. You've got that in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17 and 18. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. So, John, you may see death and more death and more death and more death. You may see visions in which you see believers lose their lives. You see martyrdom. You see much else in these visions. You may see hell seeking to do this and to do that and, and at times seeming to be absolutely on top. But don't worry, John, I've got the keys. Not the dragon, nor the beast, nor the false prophet, nor the harlot. They haven't got the keys. I've got the keys. They're in my hands. Now, isn't that marvellous? We, we overlook that. We have wonderful messages on I am the first and the last and the living one. But when you see it in, the, in its context, it's absolutely marvellous. And what visions the Lord... It, we're shown in these uh, chapters. In chapter 4 and 5, it's the enthroned Christ. A lamb as it had been slain, a little lamb as it had been slain. What a vision. Why, John sees into the heart of heaven, and he sees a throne, and he sees an emerald around it, a rainbow around it. And he sees his four extraordinary living creatures in perpetual motion. And he sees the four and twenty elders, twelve from Israel, twelve from the new, from the old and the new, the elect of both covenants. And he hears the cry, holy, holy, holy. What a sight. And then he hears a cry, who will open the book? Now, anyone in the old world knew, especially uh, those with a Hebrew background, knew exactly what this little book was. It was written on the back, John says, and the front. That is, it was a kind of scroll, and it had seven seals. Now, everyone who had any money or property at all, before they died, they drew up a testament or a will, and they sealed it with seven seals. So anyone who read this in those days knew exactly what, this is a testament. This is a will. It's all to do with the heritage, or inheritance, if you like, however you like to put it. And so the cry goes out from around the throne of God, who will, um, shall we put it this way, who will realize the purpose of God? Who will fulfill the will of God? Who will do this thing and obtain God's heritage? silence. John was so affected by the vision that he began to cry and someone came to him and said, don't cry. Uh, he said, the, uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath overcome and done it. And I've no doubt John looked there for a magnificent male lion with its flowing mane and there in the midst of the throne, he saw a little lamb as it had been slain. 
Well, when he sees that, he sees that the scroll is taken in the hands of this little lamb. And then, without any further to do, that's not pandemonium, but an absolute hallelujah chorus. Why, John must have been completely bowled over. First, the living ones start to cry out. The four and twenty elders cry out this tremendous cry. Listen to them. They throw their crowns down. Worthy are they? Now, of course, we don't think of things like that, do we? I mean, it must have been just tremendous in this dignified thing. We've just said, holy, holy, holy. Suddenly, at this... As, as this scroll comes into the hands of the little lamb, these four and twenty elders take their crowns off and fling them at the feet of the lamb. And then they cry out these great words, Worthy art thou, they say in unison, to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain, and didst purchase unto God with thy blood, men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and madest them to be unto our God a kingdom and priest, and they shall reign upon the earth. And before they'd hardly finished, the angels, ten thousands uh, times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, that I often hear in prayer, people seem to think are saints, but they weren't. They were angels. They cry out in a tremendous universal chorus. And their cry is as worthy as the Lamb that hath been slain to receive the power and riches and wisdom and might and honour, and glory, and blessing. You've never seen a coronation like it. And then, it goes out to every created thing. Now, you see, this must be a vision, because this hasn't happened yet, this last part. And every created thing which is in the heaven and on the earth, and under the earth, that's hell, and on the sea, and all things that are in them, heard I saying, Unto him that sitteth on the throne, and unto the Lamb be the blessing, and the honour, and the glory, and the dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Now here we have a picture of the final, as it goes right at every single thing, even in hell, bows its knee and confesses, that Jesus Christ is Lord. What a vision. Now, if John had been just stay, had stayed with that vision, it would have been just marvellous, wouldn't it? Oh, we'll give this to the churches. We'll write this to the churches. They had a rather tough time with some of those messages the Lord gave them. But they'll be lifted into glory by this. This will be tremendous. But then, from chapter 6 right through to chapter 8, verse 2, we have the seven seals. One by one they're broken, and it's terrifying as they're broken the hideous things that happen. Well, we can't stop with that or we'll be here all night. But when you get to the sixth seal, there is an interlude. And this happens again and again in Revelation, when you come to the sixth. You see, there are seven seals. Out of the seventh seal come seven trumpets. And out of the seventh trumpet come the seven bowls. And between the sixth and seventh seal, something tremendous happens. Between the sixth and seventh trum trumpet, something tremendous happens. And here it is. In chapter seven, you have it. It is the overcomer however you like to call Now, we can't stop with that either. But here you've got the different tribes. Now, some, of course, like to feel that this is, of course, the Jewish people. But I can't stop with that just now, except I'll just point out one of the tribes is not mentioned here at all. And uh, it's made up by the number by splitting Joseph, 
who is both Ephraim and Manasseh, giving Joseph just left as Joseph, and Manasseh is made up for Dan. Also, it's not the normal order. Judah's put first because from Judah came the Messiah. Never mind. The great thing is we have 144,000. It is, of course, a symbolic number. 12 times 12. Tremendous. And then around them a multitude that no man can number from every tribe and kindred and people. Then from this seventh seal, we have seven trumpets. And they are in many ways more terrible than the seven seals. And you notice that <clears throat> when it comes to the sixth trumpet, uh, verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 7, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then is finished the mystery of God, according to the good tidings which he declared to his servants, the prophets. You've got the same thing again. It's another way of putting the 144,000. If you look in chapter 11, you will find again it's all to do with the same thing. It's all to do with Zechariah's vision. The olive trees, the lampstand, and this time it's two lampstands, and the witnesses. We can't stop there. I just have to tell you these things. When you come to chapter 12, there's a break. And now we go right back again and we see the whole thing again. From chapter 12 to chapter 14, we have, first of all, the most extraordinary vision of a woman. This woman wears the sun. That's how glorious she is. She wears the sun. Now think of that. She has a crown with 12 stars. The moon is under her feet. And uh, John sees the most extraordinary sight. He sees her giving birth. Now, giving birth is really quite a terrifying thing to those who are not used to it. You've all heard about silly films of ladies giving birth, mothers giving birth, men particularly fainting and carried out, sheer horror of it. Well, John was appalled. Sees this woman in the contortions of childbirth, in travail, and he sees that she is being delivered of a son, of a man, child, but far more terrible. Right next to her is the most hideous creature you can imagine. It says he was an enormous dragon. His tail was so large that when it swept like an angry cat, it swept one-third of the stars out of the heavens. What a vision. This woman... A little child being born, and this vile, great dragon. You've got it here. There we see a red, great red dragon. Seven heads. Think of it. Ten horns. Upon his head, seven crowns. His tail draweth a third part. What a picture. It's a picture, of course, that uh, folk in more primitive conditions would be more used to. Creatures of prey like jackals, hyenas, they follow after deer when they know there's any pregnant doe there. And as soon as that baby is born, they know the mother is so weak and the baby is so small, they can eat the newborn baby. And this is exactly this horrifying picture of this dragon waiting to devour the man-child. But heaven steps in and the man-child's caught up to heaven. And then the dragon is so furious that he uh, goes after the woman and her seed. 
Then we have horrifying visions. The dragon doesn't know what to do. He casts out water to try and get the woman, and the earth swallows it up. So he goes and stands on the edge of the sea, and out of the sea comes a monster that is hard to describe, part leopard, part bear, part uh, lion, diverse from any creature. He's got the cunning of a leopard, the strength of a bear, and the ferocity of a lion. Out he comes. Who is this? It's the Antichrist. We know, of course, from Daniel that uh, these creatures before signified four great empires, but here they're all mixed up into one final great conglomeration. As if that's not enough. Out of the earth comes another beast. This one looks like a lamb and speaks like a dragon. Well, that surely doesn't leave much for you Christians to cotton on to. Something religious, surely. The Antichrist is some political despot. Then this is some kind of pope, I suppose, or religious authority who speaks for the beast and causes everyone to Give their allegiance to the beast. Now we've got something. <laughs> what a picture. When we come to Revelation 14, we have the 144,000 again. Only this time they're beyond the touch of the enemy. Can't get them. And we're told who these people are. This is why I don't think it can be just the old covenant church or Jewish elect. Because it says here... These are they that were not defiled with women, verse 4, for they are virgins. These are they that follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were purchased from among men to be the first fruits unto God and unto the Lamb. First fruits. First fruits. Well, um, when you come to chapter 15 and 16, you come to the seven bowls with the seven final plagues. Now, in Scripture... You will remember that it was the ten plagues uh, that Moses worked by the power of God that brought about the Exodus. You remember that, don't you? Now, it is not without reason that in chapter 15, um, we see we've got all these, the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon, all combining the devil, the antichrist, and the religious authority all combining to defy God and to destroy the woman. Now, when you come to chapter 15, we read uh, verse 2, I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing by the sea of glass, having hearts, and they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. These are the seven last plagues with which God is going to finally deliver his people for good. Or, if you like, is going to finally fulfill his purpose. And so we hear they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Harking back to that, you have those seven bowls, one after another, poured out. In chapter... uh, 17 to 20, you have two things. 
On the one hand, judgment, and the other hand, preparation. Here you have the harlot, Mother Babylon, Great Babylon, Mother of the harlots of the earth and the abominations. Well, if you read that, you'll see quite clearly what that is too, I'm sure. She's obvious, you only have two women in Revelation. One is the bride and the other is the harlot. One is a, is, is a virgin, completely pure, and the other is someone who was once a virgin and has become impure. Now gives herself to anything and everyone. One is made out of gold, precious stones and, and uh, pearl. The other is gilded with it. That's its skin deep. Underneath is any old wood. On top it looks the same. You've got two women who look very much alike until you scratch them. Underneath the first, you'll find wood. Underneath the other, you'll find it genuine gold, precious stone and pearl, right through. It's the only way to describe it. Forgive it, it's rather crude. But uh, that's the only way. Chapter 17, chapter 18, we're told of the judgment of that harlot. And then we go on to chapter 19, and we hear of the judgment of the beast, and then the judgment of the false prophet. And when we come to chapter 20, we have the millennium, if you like, and we read there of those who will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now think of that. And uh, we're told that all those who take part in that are the first resurrection. That is, there will be a first resurrection. First fruits under God. That's what we're waiting for, aren't we? Coming of the Lord and the rapture of the saints. Tremendous thing. And then you have the final judgment. After that, you have the final coming of the new heaven and new earth in chapter 21 and 22. You've got the city or the bride of um, God. Now, it is absolutely marvellous to me that in spite of all that conflict and all that battle, and all that martyrdom, and all that suffering, at the very beginning, we see the risen, triumphant, all-glorious Christ walking in the midst of those seven very ordinary churches, saying, Fear not, to his servant John, Fear not, I am the first and the last. You may be tempted to think I was the first, but not the last. You may be tempted to think at times, I started you on the way. I started something I can't complete, but I'm the first and the last. And this is the proof. I am the living one. I was dead or became dead. In other words, that's, as far as we're concerned as human beings, the end. The last enemy, death. I be, and I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. What does the Lord mean by that? He means this. Don't fear. Don't fear. I am perfectly well able to take you right through to the city. I am perfectly well able to take you right through to the throne. I am perfectly well able to take you right through to the bride. Fear not.
Well, I think we'll end there. We've already, it's already ten past nine. I think we must end there. But I think that's a good place, perhaps, to end. It has always been, to me, a markable of singular grace and love that when the Lord speaks to the church at Laodicea, he introduces himself as the Amen. Now, only grace could do a thing like that. You see, there were people in the church of Laodicea who really wanted the Lord. And really what the Lord was saying, he could have said, I am the judge. I am the refiner. I'm the tipper out, if you like, putting it rather vulgarly. That's exactly what he said. I'll spew the out. It's a very unpleasant word he uses, by the way, in connection with some of the saints in Laodicea. Because you're neither hot nor cold. But he doesn't. He says, I'm the Amen. Now, what does that mean? I'm the one who can take you through to what I first intended. I'm the Amen. I am the Amen to the purpose of God in your life. I am the Amen to the will of God for you. I am the Amen to the revealed mind of God that you should be conformed to the image of his Son. I am the Amen to that. I am the Amen to you being built together. I am the Amen to gold being found in you, refined by fire, which he says in that very... In that very message, I counsel thee to buy of me gold refined in the fire. Is it not all grace that the Lord Jesus says to that so apathetic uh, church, I am the Amen, and to that church, he says, he that overcometh shall sit with me in my throne. I'm the Amen. Can you believe that? Can you really believe that? Now, of course... We often say to one another, ignorance is bliss. True. We can sing all these hymns and we can um, rejoice about the kingdom of God if we're, in a superficial way, if we're ignorant. But if we see this book with all its battles, with all its darkness, with all its conflict, if we see at times Babylon seemingly on top, beast and the false prophet and the dragon seemingly winning to such a point that we lose our very lives and have to die in faith, believing implicitly in the words of the Lord, not one hair of your head shall perish. Then I say, if we see all that and can still say, Lord, thou art the Amen, that is real devotion and real faith. Can you and I really believe that the Lord can take us through? I say, yes, we can, surely. Surely we can. Why, John, of course, died long ago. He's one of those whose bodies have now dissolved into nothing. We don't know where the bones are. We don't know where the dust is. It's all gone. But John's been, he died in faith, and as far as we know, his body has been waiting for that hope, that blessed hope.
of the coming of the Lord. Well, may we be strengthened. If the Lord wills, next Thursday, we'll talk a little more about Revelation and we'll look at the matter in a much more practical way. The question I want to ask is, what is overcoming? That's very practical. Because you can't overcome a mess. You see, in the midst of the church, it is he that overcometh. He that overcometh. Overcoming is personal. Within the corporate. And we've got to come to that. So next week we'll ask ourselves the question, what is overcoming in, in the light of this book of Revelation? May the Lord just help us. So we bow our heads and ask him to translate this. Dear Lord, we pray that thou wilt now translate all of this out of theory, out of only instruction, into something which really influences our conduct and our way of life. Lord, we need to be ready for thy coming. And we pray together that thou wilt, Lord, give us that faith that sees thee as the one who is the overcomer. Why thy word says, whatsoever is begotten of God, overcometh the world, and this is the victory, that overcometh the world, even our faith. And who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. O oh Lord, we pray that we may be given such faith in these days, true faith, living faith, faith that joins us to thyself, faith that puts us into touch with thy resources, faith that grants, Lord, uh, a kind of supply of the Spirit of Jesus. O oh Lord, we commit ourselves now to thee and pray, give light, Lord, in this very complex book. Give light to us, Lord. May we be delivered from fantasy and from imaginations. And may we be granted it be granted to every one of us, Lord, that we be doers in practical, earthly terms of thy word. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.